Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. It's time to celebrate this messy decade and to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end, because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. Today, I am joined by the brilliant Gemma Hurley. After graduating in 2009, Gemma had big dreams of pursuing a writing career, but like many of us, had absolutely no idea how to get there. Taking up several low-paid freelance jobs in London, Gemma's early 20s were spent trying to get her foot in the door, working for various theatre companies, taking admin roles in the arts and arranging coffee meetings with producers, all while continuing to write and perform sketches with friends on the side. Upon taking advice from one of the producers she met, Gemma took some plays up to Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Hooked by the adrenaline, soul-crushing and often stressful experiences of the Fringe, every year Gemma quit the admin job she had in order to go up to the festival and put her plays on. Though many were successful, including a sellout show which transferred to Leicester Square in London, Gemma didn't get the big break she was after. And so in the following years, she got a job producing online adverts for brands to pay the rent as she felt her writing career slowly beginning to slip away. However, in 2017, Gemma received some inheritance money and with it, a big decision. She could either be what she referred to as a proper adult and get a mortgage or quit her job and dive headfirst into the writing career she always wanted to pursue. And I'm thrilled to tell you she chose the latter. Travelling around Europe with her boyfriend, Gemma wrote continuously, soaking up this newfound freedom and loving every second of it. Upon returning to the UK, Gemma had reinvented herself as a genre TV writer and bagged herself an agent at one of the top agencies in the UK, Independent Talent. Though she spent the next two years totally broke and fighting the imposter syndrome that this industry loves to instill in you, she made it through the other side. After 150 meetings, she keeps a spreadsheet, Gemma has had four of her own projects optioned and been in writer's rooms for companies like Eleven Films and Sky. What Gemma describes as one of the most reckless decisions she's ever made turned out to be the most rewarding in every way possible. Gemma's 20s journey just goes to show that even when you feel like you're not making any progress, every coffee meeting you take, every project idea you make, it will reward you in the end. Hi Gemma. Hi Emma. Oh, that was so sweet. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's the, that's the very, it's, it's so odd listening to something like that about yourself, but thanks. <laughs> did it ring true? <laughs> it did, but I, I guess I was just like hearing like, God, I like, um, I suppose I've had this thing where I just feel like I had like such a lucky, 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 lucky break. Um, and I feel very privileged about that. And I, I always kind of catch myself in the dead of night going, oh my God, what would have happened if I hadn't, um, you know, just received that money just when I needed it? Like, would I still be like staring at my wall in the middle of the night going, oh God, yeah. like, how do I get out of this? So um, it's, uh, there we go, there's some existential dread for you. Yeah. <laughs> Love a bit of existential dread in the morning. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'd start off by asking you the question, which I ask everyone, and that is that when you were a teenager looking into your 20s, can you remember, if anything, um, what you wanted the most? What I wanted the most, I suppose when I was a teenager, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be. You know, I, I don't know how many, um, how many people feel the same thing, but there's that kind of whole, you know, that pressure, you've got to like make a decision about what degree you're going to do when you get to uni, how you're going to make money. And frankly, like when I was in my teens, like no one was saying being a writer was a feasible career. And I probably would have agreed with them, to be honest. <laughs> it's not, it is not uh, the most uh, sustainable or easy career to get into. So it just wasn't on my radar, really. I was, you know, I, 
I, I don't know, I was writing stories when I was a kid and as a teenager doing like sketch shows and stuff like that. But um, mm. I was just like, mm, maybe I could be, you know, I like English. I could be in the generic media, whatever that means. Because <laughs> you know, no one really tells you about what all those things are unless you already know someone in the industry, which I certainly didn't. Mm. Um, yeah I think that's definitely the case especially at schools and stuff like I had obviously I work in TV now and I had absolutely no idea mm. what that entailed at all and even media like stuff like advertising obviously that you went into like it's not talked about at all you know yeah. you have your generic jobs that are covered quite thoroughly but stuff like the arts is often put to the side um so mm. it is it's a difficult time isn't it yeah yeah no um it certainly is I think um like I know some people who've been to like a film school and, you know, things like that. But it was just not something that um, I guess would occur to you unless you kind of like, you know, you're kind of someone comes to you and kind of explains that these things exist or mm. that they're useful. I mean, I I did an English degree. I didn't do a, a media degree or anything like that. And I think there is that kind of pressure to like show that you're doing um, a vocation that um, is stable yeah. and can pay the rent and all this type of thing. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a very tricky time um, if you are looking to go into the media for sure. Mm, I did English at uni as well and it's just the classic um <laughs> the classic comment when you leave like oh so you're gonna be a teacher now mm, like yeah, no, yeah. good one <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so that. did you have that fear when you left uni what sort of got you into your first few jobs oh lordy um so yeah just leave it well so I uh, left uni in 2009 straight into the the recession which is very fun um and, and it was just like I suppose those first few years, you're just trying to like muddle through. So I, I didn't know, I didn't even know really what a screenwriter was, I suppose, when I just left uni. Like, sure, I'd been, you know, writing plays in our like writers' society and things like that, but I didn't really know how one even went about. How do you, how do you become a writer? Like, does it just, you know, one day you wake up and it's, you get the, I don't know, it happens to you. I don't know. Um, yeah. So, but I also knew that that wasn't going to like pay the rent anytime soon so I had to you know get a job and I thought oh maybe if I could get a job in development in narrative mm. tv or um film or you know on set like I'll learn like you know how the whole get some context for this industry for someone just sure. woefully just like ignorant <laughs> of the whole thing like um so you know I did I did like an inter um sorry an internship at um Vertigo Films like taking out their bins and I did some uh, um, content media which was actually really helpful because um I got to read a load of other people's scripts like lots of other writers would send in scripts and mm. I was given the chance to read them like oh okay so this is what a screenplay is <laughs> like um, <laughs> I've got, for anyone who doesn't I appreciate if I say I'm a screenwriter some people don't even know what that is I don't know if I need to clarify that but it's essentially writing um it's like a blueprint document that um, is used for write, uh, making TV shows or films that, are, you know, drama or, you know, sci-fi or something. It's not reality TV. It's, you know, mm. the, the shows that we... Scripted. Yeah, scripted. Scripted. There we go, Emma. Thank you. Mm. You should do one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just by like learning lots from those little kind of internship jobs about what is this industry? Like how, I don't even, you know, mm. any kind of context. Mm. You mentioned that, you know, there were quite a few sort of low or no paid jobs um, that you took. And 
like there are so many of them about and I just think it's ridiculous to assume that everyone can do that which is why you know there is such a lack of diversity in this industry and has been for so long did that like frustrate you at the time or or were you actually just quite grateful to just be there you know that's a really good question and it's something I'm probably still (laughs) still wrestling with now um I think you're absolutely right there is a I mean I think the there is that kind of thing like oh I should be grateful I should be grateful Mm. that like oh you've given me a foot in the door or my first gig or this internship at this company to take out your bins or whatever um and you know you're really not paid very well for it I, I mean a job that I um got onto where I was actually quite a had a lot of responsibility at this uh, festival for London screenwriters um I was paid you know I was just paid expenses I think this was before it became illegal to do that um but it was you know I was paid I've worked there for months and months and months um you know all helping to organize a big festival where people were paying like 300 quid for a ticket and just getting it <sighs> you know it's just like pain painful that kind of exploitation but the yeah. thing is I was still able to do that because I happened to have a mum who lived in London so I could live with my mum in London I didn't have to pay mm. the rent you know but not everyone has that privilege and I did um sure I was stone cold cold broke um but it was still a privilege and I think if you know you know someone else might not have that opportunity it just means that they are literally not able to get into the industry um which yeah. you know and as you say you miss, missing out on um people from out of london as any kind of diversity mm-hmm. um and you know people from low socioeconomic backgrounds as well which is awful because yeah. you know most people in the this industry kind of are kind of middle class or upper 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 middle class and mm. mostly white um but you know it's just I think we've got a real problem and I think that um it's not just in the it doesn't just affect people in you know the really early stages like the runners and the assistants it also like kind of trickles up into who ends up making shows who ends up making decisions um you know Mm. 10 years down the line so it's definitely an issue our industry is struggling with yeah for sure at that screenwriting festival then you mentioned that um you uh, managed to get like a few sort of contacts in the industry and went for a few coffees. Um, and I, I love that one of the first coffee meetings you had actually ended up in a job, but just 10 years later, oh you want to tell me a bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. So you do, you do get stuff out of it. I, you know, I don't want to sound like, oh, how dare they, they gave me a chance, those bastards. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it was a, it was amazing experience because, um, you know, demystified the whole uh, industry for me I'm like oh like you know that so-and-so's agent is just like a person you know they're not like these mm. um scary gorgons or whatever which I built them up in my mind to be and um you know and you, you end up having conversations with um you know either certain writers or producers or agents and um some of them were lovely enough to be like yeah okay fine we can have a coffee you can ask advice and which was just invaluable because there was so much mm conflicting advice going around at the time at least from my perspective and um it just so happens that like one of these coffee um producer chats I had um you know it was a lovely guy and I thought nothing of it um for like 10 years um you know nothing came of it it was like you know thank you like you know and then um I had an interview for a job with Sky Studios um a couple of months ago and I was like hold on a second like 
you're that person that I had that coffee with. Like, oh you know, my God. It was just like one of those, like, oh my, wow. Like, and, um, you know, you kind of have a joke about it and stuff. And I, I got the job. So I guess the coffee couldn't have gone that badly 10 years ago. So, uh, yeah, now I'm writing for um, a lovely Sky show, um, which is like a kind of ah. supernatural thriller. So I'm excited about that. Mm. That's so exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, yes, um, we just don't know, I guess, like the people that you meet when you're starting out in your career, like who's mm. going to be, you know, who you're going to work with down the line, not just people who are in a senior position, but also like your peers who are your same age. Mm. Yeah, massively, mm. massively important. You mentioned um, that you sort of experimented with writing par- partnerships during um those sorts of years um do do you prefer writing in a duo because I think it's quite an acquired taste and obviously you know you see the amazing ones that go well like Ruth Jones and James Corden and Mm -hmm. obviously everyone aspires to that but um do you prefer writing in a duo or well I think writing is one of those weird professions like where I think maybe a lot of people have these perceptions of like the writer is like an auteur you know they're like um you know there's always kind of Hollywood's um horrible um ideas about directors that we hear who are always you know like Mm. this is my show la 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 you know and I think there's definitely an aspect to that with writers who can be quite um you know there's a bad stereotype that they're quite controlling and uh fragile egos and you know all of that Mm -hmm. stuff it's um and I think the problem I think that's okay if you're a novelist where you're just writing a you know that's your thing if you're doing a screenplay it's quite collaborative um it's quite a collaborative process and you know um so sometimes it's you know and we have things called writers rooms as well which is where like maybe like not just two of you but maybe like five six of you will be in a room together um Mm. trying to like work collaborate and create this show together like sharing personal stories trying to figure out like character arcs together like make the world um more realistic together and you have to be I mean, that, that's, it, it's such, I've only done it like, um, maybe like three or four times, but, um, I, you know, I had all these ideas in it about, oh, it's going to be like that kind of American system where everyone's like, you know, competing over each other and shouting over <laughs> each other to like, this is my, you know, to tell the best joke or, you know, um, but that hasn't been my experience. It's actually been quite, um, you, you, you know, people are share things like their deepest, um, you know, uh, events that have happened to them and you you know, you mm-hmm. feel like you form this kind of bond of trust in the room. Um, and I really enjoyed mm-hmm. that because, you know, while you're just sitting there on your own working on your own project, you're, um, you know, you're just like, oh, God, I can't crack this this thing that's killing me. And I've been working on it for weeks. And when you're in a room with all these people, you've got all these really smart people who just like go, oh, it's this. And you're like, oh, yeah. you know, so there is like a, I suppose, you know, it, it feels lovely feeling like you can rely on other people and to, um, you know, be super smart and, you know, mm. so yeah, I do, I do love collaborating with people when I get the chance for sure. Yeah. It's such an incredible space as well. Like I've always wanted to go in a writer's room because that just sounds like the best job ever. Imagine waking up and being like, oh, today I'm going to plan a story <laughs> with my, like some friends. Like honestly, <laughs> such, <laughs> so, so great. It did originate from America and um, like initially didn't it? Cause they've, mm. they've always done writer's rooms for their soaps and stuff. Whereas over here, it's sort of very individual. Um, so I'm glad that they're sort of like coming out of the woodwork and they're happening more and more. You know, I think it, um, this is just my opinion, but I think it's probably a money thing. I think in America, they've got mm. like you know like tons tons more money they've got like you know they do writers rooms over there for like 
20 weeks or something like that. So you're just in a room for 20 weeks working on like a show. Um, and especially back in the day when, um, before the writer's strikes in like the mid 2000s, where like um, series would be like, you know, plus 20 episodes long, you know, mm. whereas now they're, you know, it's like half that. Um, but yeah, in, in, in England, I suppose we like doing quite authored, authored, like this is a show created by this writer. And yeah. maybe maybe with um, the rise of Netflix and Amazon and more than three channels, uh, <laughs> that, you know, I guess it's like needs must. We need more content faster. And the only way to do that is with the writer's room. Yeah, put their heads together. Exactly. Mm. So moving into your mid- mid-20s then, um, uh, so, so Edinburgh Fringe, what um, inspired that? I mean, obviously you said that you chatted to a producer and that was sort of, he su- suggested that you go. Um, but what kept you kept you up there and <laughs> uh well um I get yeah I guess yeah you're definitely right is we had a um it was kind of that kind of time where I said like oh you're getting all this conflicting advice about the best way to become a screenwriter and you just have no clue and we've been doing lots of um like you know sketches on YouTube in the kind of like late 2000s early oh, I don't know tweens I don't know what you call it uh 2010 era and we're doing lots of short films and some of them were actually getting quite a lot of hits like I think now there's like I don't know like 30 million views on like wow insane but they're they're all just like comedy parody fun stuff and um we're like this isn't screenwriting this isn't gonna lead to a screenwriting (laughs) career like this is just a YouTube career you know um now, oh, we need to do things. Um, we need we need more feedback. We need to like work on our craft, and we need to like get more get out there in the British scene, so we're kind of known a bit more. And um, mm. so, yeah, producer said like, "Oh, you do comedy. Have you considered a festival?" We're like, no, because I don't want to write theatre. But okay, <laughs> like, let, you know, we might it might be fun. We might learn something. And you know, it, we did. It was. I mean, it was obviously one of the. If, you, if people don't know what Edinburgh Festival is, it's this, um, you know, this big arts festival that happens every year in Edinburgh in August. And you have lots of comedians, lots of plays. And we um, wrote this comedy play. We took it up and um, we did it, you know, because we're super broke. We like had to raise money on Kickstarter to go and like beg all our friends and family. Um, um, you know, like um, we managed to raise like, a, I think it's like five grand or something like that, which for us was like, oh my God, this is so much money. Um, and, you know, we, we managed, you know, we took a cast of like five wonderful actors up um, for this show called Death Ship 666, which is like a, oh, it's like a parody of the Titanic, basically. And um, nice. we did it on the free fringe, for, um, which is like basically people don't pay for tickets. They they uh, donate money based on how much they think your show is worth, which is even more painful. <laughs> Savage. You know? I know, I know. Um, so we just had all that pressure, like, oh, God, you know, we'd heard all these horror stories about like, oh, only like two people show up on average to, um, to a, these shows. And we're like, oh God, this is going to be awful. Um, oh. but yeah, on the first day, it was just like, we're like the, the seats are gone. Like there's, there's, there's so much we're sold out. People had to stand at the back oh my and God. stuff. And it was just like one of those, like, wow, this is really happening. Like, it was just like one of those like amazing, like, um, getting that audience feedback, hearing people like laugh at your jokes and seeing what works and what mm. doesn't work and being able to kind of tweak that on the fly. It was such an invaluable experience, like putting yourselves 
in that kind of risky position just like got so mm. so many rewards back and I I can't recommend it enough even though it was like at times awful <laughs> you know just like you know going you know walking down the streets trying to sell your show with flyers to people who don't care um you know and it is like a massive you know you don't make money from edinburgh you lose money um but we managed to break even and we were just like super like you know we thought oh this is it this is the start of our career like we're gonna Mm. whatever um and then you know after that we took the play back to esther square and we had quite like some really good um you know um reviews and we got I think we were like five star in the express and stuff like that but like Amazing. but yeah but it's it just didn't really come to anything like we you know we're like well what do we do now it's not really happening mm. this still isn't screenwriting um we're still not talking to the right people or you know so how do you go from there um and we didn't really know and we, we took an, another another play up to Edinburgh the year after which was a lot more um ambitious and we had less time to write it and it was um perhaps only really like came into its own by the end of the festival but obviously that's too late mm. um and then we're like we can't keep doing this we can't keep quitting our jobs and nothing's really happening um mm. you know so we kind of had to take a break on it really and that was kind of like god like is this the end of my writing career <laughs> <laughs> yeah you mentioned in those years afterwards you said um I didn't even believe I had what it took to be a writer and was deeply unhappy and like like that feeling I'm sure like if you're you know you've worked so hard to get those plays off and they've been successful as well that's sort of like the bittersweet thing it's like Mm. obviously I'm doing something right but like nothing is happening and it's all out of your control as well and I'm just curious as to how you got through that feeling and how you coped with that sort of like anxiety well um well not very well I suppose because I you know you start to as you say you had all that kind of false start that kind of bittersweet like oh look those those good old days in my like Mm. you know even just like a year ago and I'm only I'm still at this moment only in my mid-20s thinking like wow is that was that like the end you know you, you always hear those like classic things about like the um you know, the, the elderly guy who used to be in a band, like I used to be in a band one day, kids. I was like, is that me? Or am I going to be like, I used to have a play one day, kids, like when I'm like, whatever. Um, but yeah, it was literally just like, well, I don't know what to do. Like, I feel like I've put, I've, I've worked so hard, like, I've, you know, and like, I don't know, you know, how to, you know, I've, um, and that was all a massive collaboration project as well. Um, so mm. I suppose that the only thing I hadn't really been doing during all that time was working on my own material and working on my own career. And, um, you know, maybe I was hiding behind, uh, being part of a group and not like having to take any like personal risks or anything mm. like that. Um, so I guess like, you know, I, had, I lived in London, I live with my partner, I had to pay the rent, um, in London because it's very expensive to live there Um, and uh yeah so I got a job um I got I did some rubbish uh admin jobs um and then I got a job in advertising like producing uh videos for like brands and things like that um Mm. which was good because I could use my skills that I'd learned making all those short films to, to use um and make some kind of um you know, pay the rent off it. And I could see myself slowly moving up that career ladder in advertising going, oh, okay, this could be my life. And I just don't be a writer anymore. Um, but it just felt, it just felt wrong. It was just like, I, mm. I was getting up every morning to write. I was writing on my lunch breaks, writing on my weekends. Like I just didn't have a life. I was just so desperate to like 
write my own, you know, oh, I can write, I'll write a pilot. Oh, that's what I'll do. That's how you become a screenwriter. You, you write a pilot and you get people to read it, you know. Um, and I was still, you know, learning at that time. Like, you know, I hadn't written many scripts on my own, so I still had quite a way to go. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was a few years. It was like maybe like three maybe four max years where I was just like, this isn't going to happen. And Mm. because, but why would it happen? Because I hadn't done the thing to make it happen apart from sit in my room writing, you know? Um, it's just, I I could just see, I think there was a moment, um, where I hadn't even realized I didn't believe that I was ever going to be a writer. And it was just this kind of real, like horrible sinking realization. I was just kind of like lying to myself being like, this is, this is, this is all for something, but like, it wasn't because I wasn't, you know, doing anything with it. Um, so yeah, it's just really difficult time. I was very unhappy. And, um, even though I learned lots of amazing, really useful stuff from the advertising world, which would actually really help me when I became a writer, but you just don't know it at the time, do you? You don't, you know, Mm. you're just kind of, if anyone who plays video games, I guess it was that kind of time where you're just like, grinding away like trying to level up but you know you don't know when you're going to level up or like if you will level up so it's just really like frustrating and like quite a frightening kind of time I was like oh wow like this you know I'm this could be it you know Mm. and I guess then was the time that the inheritance money sort of came into your into your life so exactly yeah so what, obviously you said that you had these two decisions, mortgage or writing. Um, was that a tough decision to make or did it sort of just come to you immediately and you were like, Do you know what, it's now or never? Well, no, um, it didn't come to me immediately. I, I think this is the point where you're kind of not aware that you're maybe subconsciously sabotaging yourself or <laughs> you're, too, you're too afraid to even realise that you have a choice I suppose like, um, mm. so when I first, um, received some inheritance money, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, earth shattering amount, but it was enough to, um, put some on those, I don't know if people know about these, like shared ownership houses where you can get a really low deposit together and get one of those like really brand new flats in London somewhere and feel like you're living the dream kind of thing. <laughs> um, so me and my partner, we were like, oh yeah, let's do that. We're like nearly 30. You're supposed to get a house and whatever. And you're, I'm in advertising. And so um, we're like, yeah, that's a good idea. And we, we went on loads of, um, we went on all those house viewing kind of things. And we, um, there was one in particular that we looked at and like, yeah, 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 that, that's right. Right. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. And, um, mm. we, we drove home and we were talking about it and my partner was like, and don't worry about the writing when you're like 35, you can start trying to write again once we've like paid them all. And I was like, Oh God, like, no, oh. that, that, that's like, if I wait till then, it's not going to happen. Like it's actually not going to happen. It was like this big kind of realization. And I think like in the middle of the night, that night, that very same night, we were just both like, we didn't realize neither of us were sleeping. We we're just like staring at the ceiling going like, oh my God, like I, yeah. we have to, we have to, we have to quit our life. Otherwise this is, this is not going to happen. This is the moment. And if I don't do something about it now, like I'll never like this, I'll never get a chance like this again. So like literally the next day, quit my job in advertising, handed in our notice on our flat, 
moved back in with my mom. Um, and then, um, <laughs> it was literally just like, am I having a mental breakdown? Like what's happening? <laughs> it, it, I think that's might've been what my, um, my, my lovely colleagues in advertising might've thought, um, you know, they're all very kind about it, but you kind of at the back of your mind, you're like, Oh God, do people just think I'm a little bit mad or I'm like, um, mm. or just like, um, Oh, it's not really going to work out. Is it, you know, that kind of like you, you worry that people are kind of waiting for you to fail. Cause it just sounds like such a, a silly thing. Like, you mm. know, packing in my life to be this creative. It's quite, it sounds all quite self-indulgent and, um, naive, I suppose. Um, mm. but it was literally, and I don't know if, other people feel like this if you're looking to pursue a career in the arts I literally felt and this is going to sound really melodramatic so like <laughs> apologies in advance but it was just like oh I, I felt like I didn't have a choice I felt like if I don't do this like something um something will suffocate and I won't get it mm. back you know and um and I, I really felt like that it did feel like I was being pushed off a cliff and if I didn't do this like it was just as bad as kind of, I don't know. Yeah, it's very melodramatic, but it did it did feel <laughs> so high stakes at the time, like emotionally and for like the person I wanted to be and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, um, it, it almost, when I realised, when I realised I had a choice, there wasn't a choice, if you see what I mean. Mm. And I know you call it reckless, but I honestly think it's so brave. Like I know so few people who myself included would do something like that you know like I I think it depends what sort of person you are of course but you know I always feel like I need to be in control Mm. and I mean writing itself is one of those careers where you have like that just your whole career is in the hands of somebody else essentially essentially like you have agency over your own work but there's no way of ensuring you know that gets out unless you physically create your own production company and do it. So the yeah. fact that you did actually take your destiny into your own hands and, and pursued that is actually really admiring. And I think that like, it's a testimony to your character that you did that. Oh, thank you. I mean, <laughs> it didn't, I guess, I guess um, it perhaps didn't feel like that at the time. Um, and, but I think you touched on a really interesting point there about, especially in the creative industry or like just generally um, feeling like you don't have, um, control over your own career I think mm. there's I think there's definitely a balance there and I think that was one of the moments where I was like oh no way like that I do have an element of control and this is that element and I need to use that um because no one is no one cares about my career like only I do um mm. and no one else is going to push for it no one else is going to like discover me you know like it just sounds like it's yeah. just a lame thing to say but like you really you do have more control than you think which is quite a, a freeing thing but also quite a scary thing um because it mm. means you've got to take some risks which is extremely uncomfortable um uh, <laughs> if, if you're anything like me um so yeah and that, that's definitely something that I've also found since I've become a writer like that element between how much um control you have over your career and how much you're like relying on or waiting on um work from your agent or you know, producers to get back to you on things and what you can still do in the background mm. to like generate your own leads and generate your own sense of your career. Mm. So now that you are where you are, if you could go back sort of 10 years, what would you tell yourself? <laughs> um, oh my God, that's a very good question. Um, 
Well, I don't know. I think you kind of, you change, you change in the process, don't you? I think, Mm. I don't think I would go back and tell myself, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Because the truth was that it was only okay because I made it okay. You know, like it wasn't Mm. enough to just sit there. And as I was just saying, like waiting for this thing to happen, like you have to, like the only person who could have made it happen was me. And I had to finally um, have that courage to, to do it. And the irony in this whole thing is, and like, I know, obviously, like I had that massive privilege where I received the money, which allowed me to take a sabbatical to write the pilot that got me an agent. Um, The irony was like, I'd already written, like during all those years in the wilderness where I was frantically writing, the script I wrote then um, was the first thing that my agent was able to sell to someone. So I'm always kind of wondering like, oh, if I just sent that at the time, would I have got an agent? But I was, I felt like I, you know, it wasn't good enough you know, Mm. or it wasn't at the right time. So there is that element where you're always saying like, oh, I'll do this when X happens or Mm. when this is good enough or, you know, this time. And I think getting rid of those excuses maybe would be the thing that I would (laughs) tell my my, um, younger self. Like you just have to, you know, be willing to fail. Otherwise you're not going to be in a position to win. I guess if that is uh, makes any kind of sense. So true. Honestly, I've just been sat here nodding. You can't uh-huh. see me, but like literally smiling and nodding, like, yeah, completely relate to that. Mm. Yeah, it's so true. We're going to play Millennial Minesweeper now. Ooh, again. Awesome. <laughs> so just to recap on the rules, I'm just going to read you out some quotes and you've got to determine whether you think I've made them up or whether they've actually been published. Okay, cool. It feels like a okay. quiz. I love it. <laughs> There's no pressure, really. Okay. It's fine. <laughs> okay, so our first one is, 23 is the magic number for feeling particularly satisfied with your life. Uh, False. So you reckon I made it up? Yeah. Who? Who? Who's? Well, okay. Go on. <laughs> Zip. <laughs> so many questions. So that was published in an article called "These Are the Ages You're Best at Everything" by Reader's Digest. Mm. Okay. I don't actually read Reader's Digest. I was just hunting. <laughs> the um, 23 yeah, twenty-three. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I mean, I guess personally for me, that's probably true. But then it's also like such a weird kind of tumultuous time. So is it just mm. like the time when you've had like the biggest highs and the biggest kind of lows and things? I wonder. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case for me. Like 23, I definitely had the highest highs. I was in like Australia, love and life. Mm. But then I also had like the lowest lows of like, like on that, the worst I've ever felt. So yeah, it's, I was mm. intrigued to see that it was 23 because, um, I don't know. My my memories of that year are not exactly like I don't I don't remember feeling particularly satisfied yeah. with my life. Yeah, but well, that's the thing. Is it all downhill from there? That's very disconcerting. <laughs> all right. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> guys. Once you get to twenty four, it's just you may as well not yeah. try anymore. Oh cause... god, get off TikTok, you old people. That kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Cool. So our our next one. Life doesn't stop when you get to thirty. Um, well, I hope so. <laughs> yes, please. I hope that's true. <laughs> is is it is that false? Yeah. So I no, made that one up. No. <laughs> oh God, that's, that's because insane. yeah. Go on. I just like see a lot of um. Well, 
people are always like, oh, by the time I get to 30, this. I just think 30 gets a really negative press, you know, like all oh, the big three zero, all course, all downhill from here. I genuinely believe that 30 is the new 25. Like, I think people are settling down later. They're, you know, coming to what they want to do later. I think we need to change this whole 30 is the end of the world, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, maybe I, I never really, I appreciate loads of people have this, but I feel like my my life as it is only really started like I felt like everything was prep in my 20s like Mm. like the 20 I see your 20s as like sowing the seeds like putting yourself having those experiences so that the real kind of like you know work starts in your 30s (laughs) like you know I feel I think you're absolutely right I don't think it's as cut and dry as it perhaps used to be um Mm. But then you do have to, you know, you do have to like put in the work though in your twenties to make your thirties be the thing where you actually start doing stuff as well. So, mm. yeah, there's just a lot of pressure to like. I think when you get to thirty, you're supposed to have it all figured out. And mm. I know a lot of people who actually didn't, and that that is actually okay. Like there is no set time scale where you're supposed to achieve things by. Like, what doesn't is, really matter. What is figuring it out? Like what's exactly? I, I don't know if I know anyone who has that mythical life. That you know, is it like they're you know chanting on top of a mountain? Like what? Is, what, what is this thing that's supposed to happen? When I had my thirtieth birthday, I went to a theme park and just was like, I wanted to feel like um, silly again, and like mm. you know, you don't have to have. It doesn't have to be like the mortgage or the the kids or whatever, or like the, the 60 grand plus job or anything like that. Um, Mm. I don't know. I I know very few people living that life, but maybe that's just me. (laughs) No, I I agree. I love that. So our final one is 40% of young people move back home with their parents at least once. Do you reckon Uh, that's made up by me? I think it's more. (laughs) If it's in London, I think it's more like 80%. Um, Yeah. I would think that's definitely at least true um yeah yeah so that one was published in um an article from business insider um which i could yeah i agree i feel like it's probably more now Um, yeah i mean i guess it depends on where you live really but um mm. you kind of have to like all of my friends from primary school um primary school um they're all like the ones in my in London at least like they all like moved back some of them are still living with their parents because it's just like well why would I pay rent like it's just Mm. that's just the culture now it's just like why um yeah so it's very very odd times um yeah Um, Yeah. especially in London when rent is so expensive like I was so jealous of my mates who had you know like people like you essentially who have you know family in London who can afford to sort of stay at home my parents live sort of two and a half hour train journey from London so it was just wasn't an option and um I think if I had the choice I probably would have stayed you know saved the money because it is just ridiculous (laughs) yeah and it just goes back to that stuff we were talking about earlier it just means that only certain type of person has Mm -hmm. the no, I'm, not, I'm not even going to say the privilege because you're still like, you know, you're just stone cold broke for like all of the mm. 20s or whatever. But like it is a privilege um, to even be able to try and get into that industry, um, uh, which just doesn't seem like a meritocracy to me. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Gemma, for coming on the 20 Not Something podcast. Not at all. Thank you for having me. It's been so great to chat. And I feel like, 
as someone who has dabbled with the writing thing before, it's just so nice to chat to someone who and like relate to like uh, absolutely everything that you're saying. So thank you for that. Oh, no worries. <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> Thank you to the extremely talented composer and producer of this podcast, Pete Haff. And a big thank you to you guys at home for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, then please feel free to leave us a review. We absolutely love reading them and it helps more people find us. We'll see you next week. 